0: Welcome to the More You Know, a financial podcast hosted by the Biltmore Financial Group here at our Biltmore office in Phoenix, Arizona. My name is Tyson Tibshirani, and I'm a Senior Vice President Wealth Advisor with UBS. The Biltmore Financial Group is a team dedicated to helping high net worth families and business owners address their complex investment and planning needs. In today's episode of our estate planning series, we will be discussing important legal documents for people to consider as part of their personal estate planning. I'm joined here today by attorneys Bill Clark and Cody McDavis of Jennings-Strauss Law Firm. Bill is a veteran practitioner who has provided counsel to international, national, and local businesses and individual clients for more than 40 years. Cody is an associate in the firm's business transactions practice group. Cody earned his JD from the UCLA Law School, where he became the youngest to be named to the law school's board of advisors upon his graduation. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in today. Could you please list some of the most must-have legal documents everyone should at least consider?
1: No problem. Well, the first thing we take into account are the documents that are necessary during an individual's lifetime. The two primary documents I'm referring to are the health care power of attorney and the financial power of attorney. The effect of these two documents is to provide for an individual to be in the decision-making role in the event of a person becoming incapacitated. Specifically, the decisions for that individual are related to healthcare and finances. The primary objective here is to avoid the time consumption, expense, and the hardship of having to obtain a guardianship appointment or conservatorship from the court in a time of emergency such that these decisions can be made quickly.
2: A very interesting situation that we've had come up on a couple different occasions involves adult children that are unmarried who have some sort of incapacity event. For example, we had a situation where a adult child was, suffered a major injury and was transported to a hospital in California. The doctors at the hospital dealt with the parents as the health care agents. However, the hospital, because the parents did not hold a formal health care power of attorney, refused to release the adult child to the parents for transport back to Phoenix for ultimate rehabilitation. In that situation, we had to go to the probate court here in Arizona to obtain a guardianship appointment on an emergency basis to give the legal documents to the hospital in California so that the hospital in California would release the adult child to the parents for transport back to Arizona. Again, an unexpected, time-consuming, and very expensive process.
1: Again, what Bill is talking about here is the healthcare power of attorney. In this situation, where we have an incapacitated adult child, again, we say adult child, people are going to think that's an oxymoron. What we're talking about is the offspring that is over 18 of two individuals. That's what we mean when we say adult child. This adult child is in the state of California and is not able to be released because the hospital has no medical or health care power of attorney in place. The reason we want to have these documents done is such that we don't have to call up Bill Clark to have a appointment by a court before this action can be had. Because as we know, these are time critical or time of the essence situations where we don't want to have to go to a court, expend the time or the money or just the mental strain that it will cause to to do this before you can take care of your own child.
0: I had a question about that. I think before the podcast, you were talking about this situation that happened in California and that you were doing the estate plan for an individual or individuals, and you just included this health power of attorney directive for the adult child.
2: Right. Oftentimes, we provide health care power of attorney for adult children that are unmarried. Yes, and that is an, uh, something that we often do, and it seems to be very effective and appropriate for most situations. And again, you know, another situation that is related to this, but does not necessarily involve adult children, it's the um, cohabitation relationship. If you have two adults that are living together and cohabitating together, but they don't have legal married status, again, that is a situation where you need a healthcare power of attorney or financial power of attorney in order to be able to take care of each other in the event of an incapacity situation, even though you're not legally married.
0: That makes sense, that's a good example. Okay, so the health care and financial power of attorney documents are the first two must-have documents What else?
2: Next, I think that I want to turn to is the Advanced Health Care Directive or Living Will. The Advanced Health Care Directive or Living Will specifies how much health care an individual is to receive after having experienced a traumatic event that will substantially, negatively, and permanently impact their quality of life to the point that they really desire to no longer receive medical care treatment for that injury other than comfort care. And really ancillary to the Advanced Health Care Directive is the Funeral, Burial, and Cremation Directive. Bill,
0: most people, when they think about estate planning, they think of wills and trust. But you have outlined several others.
2: I think the uh, other documents are just equally important to a background will and trust. Granted, most people do think of estate planning as preparation of wills and trusts for themselves. However, the other documents that I have outlined have just as much importance, if not more importance, certainly during a person's remaining lifetime during a period of incapacity. The last will and testament and revocable trust of a person not only specify the intended beneficiaries of an individual's estate, but they also outline the terms and conditions upon which those beneficiaries have access to the assets of the estate. Further, an individual's last will and testament specifies an individual guardian designation for any minor children. The individual designated as the guardian is the person who is to provide care, custody, and control for minor children in the event of an early demise. For a young married person with a young family, it is important that the husband and wife have a will and or a trust that specifies what they want to have to happen to their assets and who they want to be in charge of their minor children. So for that normal situation for a young married couple, it is critical that they specify who is the designated guardian for their children in the event of a common disaster and who is to be in charge of the finances for their minor children in the event of a common disaster. Oftentimes, when we're going through that process, we specify different individuals as being in charge of the care, custody, and control or the guardianship position or the trustee in charge of the finances so that you have a little bit of a check and balance protection for the benefit of your minor children.
0: We've seen clients put off getting documents in place because it's not a priority, or they think there's plenty of time, and I think we all procrastinate somewhat. What are some examples of things you've seen that might indicate otherwise?
2: Oh, the overarching principle that I've learned throughout my long career is that you cannot plan for everything that is going to happen in life, especially the hard things. In an incapacity event, we have had situations where we've had to seek the appointment of a guardianship on an emergency basis because there was no person legally authorized to make medical decisions for a person. With respect to an estate, we've seen situations where beneficiaries receive assets at age 18 and they are completely incapable of handling such assets. We've seen situations where assets have gone to children who have had drug, alcohol, or substance abuse problems or other unusual circumstances. And quite frankly, those situations were purely throwing fuel on the fire for their problematic situations. With respect to second marriages and children from a prior marriage, We've seen situations where the laws of intestacy split assets between the spouse in a second marriage and the children from a prior marriage in an unintended manner. The point that I take away from these examples is that although you cannot prepare for the all of the hard events in life, you can set yourself up such that you are creating the best possible situation for your family, and heirs to adequately respond. That is the goal of a well-thought-out estate plan. You know, a
0: common statement we hear is, I've already got a trust, and I've done all of that already. Even if it was a long time ago or 10 years ago, what are the most common problems you've seen when people haven't received or reviewed their estate plan documents every few years?
1: The common problem that belies the idea that I don't need to update my estate plan is that families change, dynamics change, people get divorced, people have more kids after their estate plan has been made, or they have more grandkids or great grandkids. And because families grow, dynamics change, estate plans need to be revised accordingly. This doesn't mean that you have to incur some dramatic legal expense or go through the what some people might consider a pain of preparing their estate plan. It just means that you should maintain your relationship with both your estate documents and your estate planning attorney or whomever is planning your documents such that they can be updated because it really is something that can be done quickly over a very short period of time. And the forethought of doing that will alleviate you in a later part of life from having to deal with a massive headache that comes with not anticipating these issues or the massive headache of your family that comes with not anticipating these issues.
2: The first question that I always ask on a review situation with an estate plan is let's make sure that we have a current designation of the people that you really want to be the guardian for your minor children and a current designation for the people that you want to be in charge of your finances in the event of a common disaster of husband and wife. Because oftentimes those roles change over the years. For example, grandparents get old too old to really be the adequate guardian for any minor children. Or quite frankly, people may not really have the maintain to have the financial acumen to handle the finances for the the minor beneficiaries. So again, those are key roles that need to be reviewed every three to five years. Quite frankly, on a personal basis, my wife and I changed a number of times who we wanted to be in charge of our children in the event that my wife and I were to have a common disaster in early age. So every time you
0: would make a change in who the guardian would be, that's
2: something that you should redo your estate plan? You don't need to redo the entire estate plan, but you just need to make sure that you have the current designations in place. And quite frankly, that should not be an overwhelming burden or expense. How
0: about a change in laws? Would that be a reason?
2: From an estate tax perspective, you know, we've got a, a situation right now where we're in estate tax laws are potentially in flux. Definitely, they are going to be in flux through the January 1, 2026 period when the current estate tax laws expire. From a state probate law perspective, there are some changes that occur, but they're relatively minor, and those laws tend to be fairly stable. Okay,
0: thanks for that. Quite often, we're asked by people, do I really need a trust? Why do I need this? And obviously, you know it, we know it. Every time they think about that, oh, boy, this is going to cost me some money. And I think the preconception that people have, I think, is often wrong. Can you speak to that?
2: Well, the traditional approach to why people want to have a revocable trust during their lifetime in place of a will is really twofold. Number one, and I think this is the more important reason, is that if you have assets held in a trust, in the event of your incapacity, the successor trustee can immediately take over without having to go seek an appointment of a guardianship or a conservatorship to handle your assets. Again, that can be handled by a financial power of attorney. However, there are two basic reasons that people should consider having a revocable trust or a living trust in place of simply relying upon a will. Number one is that by having assets held in a revocable trust, the assets are immediately under the control of a successor trustee in the event that the settlor or the creator of the trust becomes incapacitated. So there's no need to go out and have a conservatorship appointed for handling such assets in the event of an incapacity situation. The reason that most people think about it is to avoid probate administration. In Arizona, we're lucky that probate administration is not an overly difficult situation. In California, probate administration is much more complicated than what we have in Arizona. But the whole point of it is that avoiding probate administration will ease the administration of a person's estate and have it flow immediately to the intended beneficiaries of the trust. Also, people have the ability to create generally much more complicated or protective devices inside a revocable trust than they do when they are creating a simple will. A Revocable trust will oftentimes provide a lot of estate tax planning provisions and protections for beneficiaries having assets held in trust for their lifetime in order to avoid drug, alcohol, or substance abuse issues, or creditor protection issues, or spousal protection issues, where you're trying to protect a child against what you think is maybe a spouse, the child's spouse that might be taking undue advantage of inheritance for a child.
1: So the question here that we're we're looking at is oftentimes we hear that people think that they don't need a trust or they have a will. And so why do I need a trust? I know the people that I want to give my assets to. And I think this can really be answered by analyzing what is a trust. And unfortunately, a lot of people think of a trust as a noun, but it gets really simple if you think of a trust in the sense of it is a verb. A trust is an agreement between you and another person to do something or to maintain something. That's what it is. So in very simple terms, if I'm making a trust, a trust is me taking money, real property, my assets. And i'm naming an individual the trustee so there's the trustor, me the trustee there's many other parties to a trust but for simple purposes we're going to talk about just those two parties it's an agreement it's a promise it's a trust between two people the entire purpose of that trust that agreement that promise is we are saying these assets are going to be managed in this way Even if I'm no longer here to have a say, that's it. Because a lot of people are under the false belief that if they don't have that, that there is no promise and they can just trust or believe or think that the people around them are going to divvy out these assets in the appropriate way, or that the state is not going to step in and do it for them. That's not correct. One, your friends, your loved ones are not in the best position, I don't care who they are, to divvy out your estate. You are. And you are going to give them a directive as to how they should do that. That's what a trust is. And where you think that the state is not going to step in and manage that, that is what intestacy is. Intestacy is a set of statutes that every state has that is effectively a trust agreement. For every single human being in that state that does not have their own trust, it specifies where assets go and how they go in the event that you do not have a trust agreement. So now that we know that a trust agreement is simply an arrangement between two people about how a set of assets are going to be managed, where the person who owns those assets is no longer in the room, we can see why it might be helpful. Because if I am John, and I'm telling Jake that, Jake, I'm asking you to enter this agreement, and Jake, you're going to manage these assets. If I ever am not able to speak or am incapacitated or I die, then Jake is not hard-pressed to figure out or guess what it is that I'd want to do. And I think when we have that understanding, it becomes pretty clear why a trust might be helpful.
0: Good stuff. Thank you for that explanation. No problem.
3: That concludes this episode. Feel free to check out our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on our website, advisors.ubs.com slash Biltmore Financial Group. Our office address is 2575 East Camelback Road, Suite 900, Phoenix, Arizona, 85016. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the arrangements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at ubs.com slash relationship summary or ask your UBS financial advisor for a copy. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or for the basis for making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be Those of UBS Financial Services, Inc., UBS Financial Services, Inc. does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. Trust services are provided by UBS Trust Company, N.A., or another licensed trust company. UBS Trust Company, N.A. is an affiliate of UBS Financial Services, Inc. and a subsidiary of UBS AG. Trust investments are not deposits or other obligations of or guaranteed by UBS Trust Company, N.A., or UBS AG, or any of their affiliates. Trust investments involve investment risks, including possible loss of principal. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor its employees, including its financial advisors, provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your legal counsel and your accountant or tax professional regarding the legal or tax implications of a particular suggestion, strategy, or investment, including any estate planning strategies before you invest or implement. Bill Clark, Cody McDavis, Dredding Strauss, and UBS Financial Services, Inc. are not affiliated.